The book of Micah is the sixth book of the Minor Prophets, although, in fact, in the Septuagint, it was placed third after Hosea and Amos. Micah's contemporaries were, as you can see from this chart, Hosea in the northern kingdom of Israel and Isaiah in the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, he might just possibly have known Amos. We are not absolutely sure for how long Amos lived, because as you will remember from our studies in the book of Amos, it is probable that Amos only actually prophesied for a very short time. His job was, as you know, a sycamore um, gatherer and, um, and a sheep breeder, and it's probable that he went back to his job after delivering the message that God gave him. So we don't quite know how long Amos lived. It's just possible, of course, um, that um, Micah would have known Amos. He certainly would have known Hosea, because he was a contemporary, uh, ministering at the same time, and he certainly knew Isaiah, with whom he, in fact, had some very close links. Um, Hosea and Amos had ministered, as you can see, in the northern kingdom, and Isaiah ministered almost exclusively to the southern kingdom. They did, of course, now and again, Isaiah did have something to say to Israel, and Hosea probably has something, by, at least by implication, in his message for Judah. But, principally, Isaiah's message and ministry was for Judah. On the right-hand side, the kingdom of Judah, whose capital was Jerusalem, and who, on the whole, remained faithful to the first order of things as instituted by Moses. Um, uh, Hosea and um, Amos had ministered in the northern kingdom of Israel, who, on the whole, departed from the first order of things. They had their own capital at Samaria. They had their own temple at Samaria. They had instituted their own priesthood uh, in the northern kingdom, and, on the whole, de had departed somewhat radically from the uh, first order of things as God uh, revealed to Moses. Now, Micah appears upon the scene. And Micah is unique in this, that he ministers to both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And it's a very interesting thing. He, as it were, combines within himself the ministries of Amos and Hosea in the north and Isaiah in the south and ministers to both north and <coughs> south. Um, it's one of the interesting things about uh, Micah. He, as I have said, combines in, within his ministry the dominant notes of the previous three, whilst yet remaining quite original. M Micah is a quite remarkable man, as we shall discover uh, as we go on this evening, I trust. Um, he remains quite original, um, his his uh, ministry is by no means an imitation. It's not just something that he received from uh, his greater contemporary, Isaiah, or from his uh, other contemporary, Hosea. 
It's being said that Micah's simple de definition of what the Lord looks for, what the Lord requires for in his own, in chapter 6, Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, O man, he hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, or to, lo uh, to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with thy God. It has been said that um, Micah's simple definition of the Lord's requirements sums up the ministry of the three who immediately precede him. To do justly, we could say that is the key to Amos. Justice, righteousness. To love kindness, the word is kesed, which is the word that, you remember, we find such great difficulty in translating. Loving kindness, steadfast love, loyal, tender love, covenanted love. The love of a marriage relationship, of respect and uh, loyalty one to the other. To love that, to love that kind, to, to love kindness, to um, really love that kind of covenant relationship. That's Hosea. And to walk humbly with the Lord thy God. And that's, um, it has been pointed out, is really a key to the prophet Isaiah. No other prophet presents the Lord as so utterly sovereign, uh, so utterly majestic and magnificent, really, as does the prophet um, Isaiah. It's rather interesting. I pass that on to you. It is, however, between um, Isaiah and Micah, as we would expect, that we find the closest links. On the other side of this board, a bit later, you will see a whole number of references that I've given, given you that you can look up yourself, showing the relationship of Micah to Isaiah. Um, these two um, are remarkably linked. They, they, they seem to be almost um, um, sort of saying the same thing with a slightly different emphasis. And it's very, very interesting. As you probably know, there is one whole section that is contained in Micah chapter 4 from verse 1 to verse 3, which is, which is in fact contained in Isaiah almost verbatim. Um, it is suggested that they both used an earlier uh, unknown prophecy, or some um, have suggested that Micah might have borrowed from Isaiah, or Isaiah borrowed from Micah, or someone else has suggested the Holy Spirit could conceivably have said the same thing in two different places. But um, whatever it is, it shows an identity and sympathy in ministry. This is all the more interesting. Some have in fact called Micah Isaiah in shorthand um, because he seems almost to embody the same sentiments and feelings, conception as Isaiah in a very much more concise and um, clear form. Isaiah, of course, was the royal prophet. Royal blood, we believe. Uh, access to the court. He was the man. He was not only the royal prophet. He was the, ma the, the man of the court, and the man of the city. On the other hand, Micah was the peasant prophet, 
and he was a man of the field and of the country. And this explains the way that these two prophets see the same thing from a different angle. Um, uh, it's very interesting, this is a study within itself, the way that Isaiah, for instance, sees God's judgment as a city dweller. He sees it from a person who, whose whole life has um, been brought up within the confines of city, of urban life. Whereas Amos sees the judgment as a peasant in his fields, and he sees, as it were, the army sweeping down upon the land from the, from the, the typical viewpoint of a peasant in the fields and in the country. Again and again you get this seeing of the same thing from a different point of view, uh, from a, as it were, a different vantage point. For instance, Isaiah has almost a doctrine of the indestructibility of Zion. For him, everything depends upon the perseverance of Zion. Everything. He would almost have shuddered at the very thought of Zion, really, in any way being um, ploughed up. And although he says that uh, the daughter of Zion is going to be ravaged and is going to know a terrible, terrible judgment and purification, he never quite goes so far as to say that Zion itself shall be ploughed up like a field. But Amos had no time for the capital. He was a typical countryman. And the countryman, generally speaking, always considers the capital to be the embodiment of iniquity. Goes up to have a good time, but everything that goes wrong in the country can be blamed, generally speaking, upon the, the big wigs um, in the capital who sit there, you know, and sort of make rules and regulations and so on. And Amos looks at it very much from that point of view. He, with almost with joy, he sees the destruction of Zion and speaks of it being ploughed up like a field. In fact, he goes so far as to say, what is the sin of Israel? It is the capital city, Samaria. What is the sin of Judah? It is the capital city, Jerusalem. This is, um, this is so interesting, you see, because in many ways it reveals to us how two men, inspired by the same God, more or less at the same time, can yet give a message coloured completely and rightly by their own background. And both be right. And it's a, most, it's a fascinating study within itself. The way that God chooses his vessels, chooses his servants, with their background and everything else that has, has as it were, produced them. Um, uh, he is almost uh, in charge of, of, their very, of their very reactions to, to things. This is a very interesting and fascinating study which we've got to leave. <coughs> Micah's style is quick, it's sharp, and it's vigorous. Uh, he does, in fact, pass from one thought, from one point, from one thought, from one subject to another, with such rapidity that he sometimes becomes obscure. He has an unfortunate habit of, of his mind moves so fast that he leaves out words. Um, because his mind moves so fast, he leaves out words, and sometimes he leaves out the thought, uh, with the result that his um, style is often described as somewhat obscure. It's a bit disjointed. Um, in spite of that, we've got to also put it on the other side. His style um, exhibits um, a poetic beauty 
which at some points is as great as Isaiah's. Some have felt that in fact it is more sublime than even uh, Isaiah's language. Some parts of the book of Micah are, are amongst the most sublime in the whole of the Bible. We have read one of them this evening. We've read two of them, really, this evening. There's another great portion in chapter 4, which also is um, of the same caliber. One of um, Micah's peculiarities is his very real fondness of, of playing on words. Uh, it doesn't come out in the normal version. But it does come out, or at least Moffat has tried to bring it out, and nearly everyone quotes Moffat on this. Um, he's tried to bring it out a little. For instance, from um, chapter, in chapter 1, from verse uh, 10 to verse, well, you could almost say to verse 16, but we'll say to verse 14, there is a play on words. Um, uh, Micah takes villages and towns of his own district, um, his own district from which he, ca he came, and he uses their names and plays on, on, on the meaning of the names. Now, this is the way Moffat, you look at your version, I'll read it to you from Moffat. Weep tears at Tear Town, grovel in the dust at Dust Town, fare forth stripped, O oh, fair town, stir town, dare not stir. See, and so on. There's one or two that have even defeated poor um, Moffat. Beth Easel and Meroth hopes in vain, he puts rather lamely. Then he goes on, to horse and drive away horse town, O source of Zion's sin, where the crimes of Israel center. O maiden Zion, you must part with Morasheth of Gath, and Israel's kings are ever balked at bulk town. <laughs> that gives you just some idea of... Um, of uh, uh, Micah's fondness of playing on words. And another very interesting thing is that Micah's name means who is like the Lord. And in chapter 7 and in verse 18, you get again a play on the words, who is a God like unto thee. I don't think that can be just a mere coincidence that um, Micah plays on his own name there. Whatever may be felt about this book of Micah and its structure, and an awful lot has been said about it, it seems quite clear that the final arrangement of the prophecies, as we have got them now, produces the maximum effect and impact. Um, there's, uh, there's been an awful lot of discussion upon the way that uh, this uh, book of Micah has been compiled. But it seems quite clear that, in fact, um, it has been finally compiled in the order that we have it now to produce a very real effect. When you finally, when you understand a little of what the prophet's getting at, you understand his abruptness and how the Holy Spirit uses his abruptness, when you finally come to this... Who is a God like unto thee? You are almost overwhelmed. And it's as if the prophet, if one, once you begin to understand Micah and what he's saying, it's as if he carries you along with him. And when finally you come to that, you're deeply moved. Because he's carried you with him. 
it is interesting. Um, in, it is, in fact, rather like the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah hid its essential message until the very last verses of the last chapter. And in many ways, this book of Micah does exactly the same. It sort of hides its essential message until the very last verses. And then suddenly the whole thing is uh, put on view, is expressed. That's rather wonderful. The whole of Micah is in poetic form, and it's quoted a number of times in the New Testament. Now, what can we say about the authorship and date of um, Micah? There has been, of course, as so often over these uh, prophetical books, a tremendous amount of controversy. The book claims to be the word of the Lord by Micah of Morisheth, given during the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. If you look at Micah chapter 1 and verse 1, you will see the claim is made there that these, these, the word, this is the word of the Lord that came to Micah um, of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Except for Jeremiah 26 verse 18, to which we shall refer a little later, nothing is known of this Micah uh, in the Bible outside of his book. As in other words, there's only one reference to him uh, in uh, Jeremiah uh, in the Bible. The prophecies, it is generally felt, are separate and are not necessarily in chronological order. Uh, this um, accounts for a certain amount of abruptness and um, the seeming awkwardness of transition from thought uh, to thought. The book represents, and this is important, a summary of Micah's ministry. It is almost an, an anthology. At times it would appear that we are only being given the gist of what Isaiah said. And that again is important that we should bear in mind. Nevertheless, there is a spiritual theme in these seven chapters overall. Whatever we might feel about the disjointedness and the obscurity of certain uh, parts, um, there is an overall spiritual theme which is the most important thing, and we must not underestimate it. All scholars of the liberal school um, deny Micah's authorship of the entire book. Uh, uh, they consider that only the first three chapters, at the most, can be attributed to him. In their estimation, it consists of a number of prophecies, some early, some late, collected together under one name. Their reasons are these. There are four reasons, main reasons, why they feel this. The first is the quick, awkward transition from one subject to another displayed in this book. Secondly, the, uh, they mean by that, of course, that the, the reason for this awkwardness, this quick transition from thought to thought, is that in fact there is no connecting link whatsoever. They are separate uh, prophecies, in some cases coming from separate uh, prophets, distinct and different prophets. 
The second reason is the lateness of theological conception. Um, there is a school of thought that wherever the word salvation comes in, or restoration, or any promise it's given, that belongs to a very late date indeed. The later the better. Um, it certainly cannot belong to the 8th century before uh, Christ. <clears throat> Thirdly, the person who uttered such threats could not be capable of such tenderness as is displayed elsewhere in the letter. Therefore, the conclusion is that one person uttered the threats, who was probably poor Micah, and someone else later of a much more tender spirit um, uttered and added uh, the promises and so on. And lastly, the fourth reason why there's a denial of, the, uh, of Michael's authorship in the entire book, because in the quotation of Micah 3 and verse 12, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 26 and verse 18, we are only given the threat and the promise is not added. Let me just read that to you. Um, in Micah 3 and verse um, 12, we read this, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be, a which shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. And then it goes on in chapter 4 straight away, of course, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the highest of the mountains, and shall be raised above the hills. Now in Jeremiah chapter 26, if you like to look at it, and in verse 18... We read this, the, the elders, certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be ploughed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the um, and entreat the favour of the Lord, and did not the Lord repent of the evil which he pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great evil upon ourselves. Now, um, this school of thought um, has said, or some have said within it, that um, this quotation uh, of Micah only records the threat and embalms the true ministry of Micah, which was one of uh, almost completely of threat and judgment. Uh, and that evidently the promise, of, which we have in Micah chapter 4, was added very much later by a prophet of a very much ten more tender uh, spirit. Now these reasons are not very conclusive we cannot even say that they're very weighty. Our answer to them is this. First of all, the first reason, Micah's style, as well as the book being a summary, explains the awkwardness of this book. Some people are a little awkward. Um, there's no doubt about that. Their style is awkward. They do jump from thing to thing, although, in fact... Um, they, there is a, a, a connection overall. There are such people who have such a style. But even more important, if this book is a summary 
almost an anthology, we should expect something of a difficulty in actual um, connection between different parts uh, of the book. It's not as if it's just been written up, a subject written up from beginning to end. Here's a, a number of prophecies covering a large number of years brought together under certain heads. Secondly, we, we, we answer, we cannot accept that every time salvation or restoration are mentioned, along with a lot of other things, it must of necessity be a later addition. Uh, we can't find this anywhere in Scripture. It's a very arbitrary standard indeed to apply uh, to scripture that uh, just because we think that uh, uh, anything like that must belong to a much later um, evolution of thought and so on, it, it, uh, we, we can judge the whole book. There are many, many parts of scripture which speak of restoration and salvation and give the promises of God which are earlier than this. Thirdly, a person who utters threats at one time, is certainly not incapable of tenderness at another time, as I think many of you have discovered in your own experience. And fourthly, the elders quoted the threat of Micah because it proved a point that they were making. The point was simply that poor Jeremiah was just about to be executed for uttering a threat against Jerusalem. And the certain elders who wanted to save him quoted the threat that, um, of judgment that Micah uh, um, uh, preached or made um, as a point in saving Jeremiah's life. In fact, it did save Jeremiah's life. If you read on in chapter 26, you find because of this, because of what Micah had said over a hundred years before, his life was in fact saved. So... When we um, look at it all, it doesn't seem to be such conclusive or even weighty evidence against um, the authorship of Micah. We can, I think, accept that this book uh, uh, is the word of the Lord by Micah, although we do not know who placed the prophecies in their final order. It could have been Micah himself who arranged them. Jeremiah's authorship of that book, uh, the book that goes by his name, is generally accepted, uh, as also is the reference to Micah within it in chapter 26. Um, that's very interesting because it means that uh, we can date at least part of the book of Micah um, by um, uh, Hezekiah's reign. So we can date it about 724 BC, approximately, uh, at least one part. Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, that is these three men, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, reigned approximately from 754 BC to about 687 uh, BC. Um, the reference to Samaria as still standing in Micah chapter 1 and verse um, 1 concerning Samaria and Jerusalem <coughs> means that at least part of the book, probably the first three chapters, um, can be dated before 721 or 2 BC when Samaria fell. 
So we can say that a large part of the book was written before 722 BC. It is, um, the book as we now have it was probably written at the end of Hezekiah's reign and the beginning of Manasseh's reign, which we can put at approximately, again, 690 uh, BC. A number of scholars believe that Micah lived into Manasseh's reign. And as you know, Manasseh was one of the most evil, along with Ahaz, of all the kings of Judah. These two kings were the most evil uh, of all the kings of Judah. And there are scholars who believe that um, Micah lived on into Manasseh's reign and that Micah chapter 6 and 7 date, in fact, from the reign of Manasseh. The reason is that they feel the description contained within those chapters is far too dark and evil to describe the days of Hezekiah and the Great Reformation. For strangely enough, Ahaz's father was the most evil of the kings of Judah, and so was his son. But Hezekiah was one of the best of all the kings of Judah, famed for the great reformation, the greatest reformation up to that date in the history of the kingdom uh, of Judah. So some um, uh, scholars feel that those last two chapters ought to be dated from the reign of Manasseh. The reference to human sacrifice, um, if you look in Micah chapter 6, Micah chapter 6, verse um, 7, last part of it, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, of course, most of you, no doubt, have taken this sort of beautifully, um, sort of as a rather wonderful and intense phrase, metaphor, figure. But in fact, it was literal. Um, at that time, Ahaz was the pioneer of, of, of a certain form of uh, Moloch worship, called the god Moloch. And this god had a great furnace at his feet into which parents came and flung their children, their newborn babies. They flung them into the furnace as a form of worship. And this terrible worship Ahaz brought into Judah and he Baalized Jehovah so that the people came, as it were, to Jerusalem and just outside the walls of Jerusalem he built a great um, idol and there was a furnace and people gave their children. He, it is said, not only gave his firstborn but he gave a number of his sons uh, to, uh, as human sacrifices. This was of course completely abolished in the reign of Hezekiah, but Manasseh uh, revived it uh, in an even more vile form in his day. So this reference here to shall I give the, the, uh, my firstborn for my transgression, this was the current vogue, religious vogue of the day, that the only way you could wipe out your transgression was by sacrificing, by human sacrifice of your firstborn, your children. Um, and this again, some have felt to be um, evidence that uh, this book, uh, these last two chapters of Micah, in, in fact come from the reign of Manasseh. But we have to say 
that um, this book is not necessarily in chronological order, and the descriptions in chapter 6 and 7 could as easily describe the reign of Ahaz as Manasseh. Although I must say in fairness that quite a large number of conservative scholars do feel that those last two chapters date from the reign of Manasseh. Can we find anything about the background? I hope this isn't too technical for you all. Um, can we find anything out about the background of the prophet Micah? Micah, the name, means who is like the Lord. And it's a shortened form of Micaiah, of which there are a number in the Old Testament. Um, but um, uh, they have no connection with our Micah, who is usually known as Micah the Morishtite or Micah of Morisheth. Um, he was a subject of the southern kingdom, and uh, he came from a town called Morisheth Gath. And as you can see uh, here, um, Morisheth Gath lay roughly between Gath of the Philistines and the Dalam. Some scholars think that it is this Marisha but it is not now known where, in fact, it is, whether it is what uh, is called, uh, we know in the scripture, as Marisha, whether they were both the same thing. What we do know is that this um, town, Morisheth Gath, lay some 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. It was a small fortified town. It was in the Shephelah. Now, the Shephelah, there are three... Um, areas of um, the promised land. There was the central mountainous district and then there was what was called the Shephelah which was the low hills between the mountains and the plain and then there was the Philistine plain. And, the, and where uh, Michael lived was in the lowlands, if you like, almost the, the foothills of the mountains of central uh, of central um, Palestine. It was a very fertile <laughs> district, quite different, you remember, to Amos. Poor Amos came from a gaunt, desert-like area, whereas Micah came from a very, very fertile, abundantly fertile uh, district. Another very interesting thing about it was this, that this town lay on the great highway um, between Western Asia and Africa. And all the traffic that was continually passing between these two continents, was passing just um, by Morishes. So that, of course, um, he saw a tremendous amount uh, from where he was brought up. Um, we can say a good deal more. We can say that uh, uh, Micah, for instance, learnt how very deeply God's people were becoming involved with Egypt. He saw, for instance, all the horses and chariots, of which the prophets had a horror. It seems strange to us, but they had an absolute horror. They felt they were an abomination, because the whole nation was putting its trust in these modern um, military um, sort of things. 
you see, it was rather like H-bomb deterrent today, and uh, people were sort of looking to the horses and chariots of Egypt as their strength, and they used to come up from Egypt, and often used to stop at this town here called Lakish, where they, the horses were given a rest before finally dragging these heavy iron chariots up to Jerusalem. Um, <clears throat> Isaiah, of course, has quite a lot to say about the horses of Egypt, and so have some of the other prophets. But he used to see that. Another thing that uh, Michael would have seen was all the merchandise passing up and down. Because, you see, this was a great, a period of very, there had been a period of very real prosperity, both in Israel and in Judah. And foreign trade, foreign merchandise was sweeping into the country, and with it came foreign religion, foreign superstitions, foreign customs, um, and everything else. Uh, again, the prophets um, were horrified by what they saw. Uh, this was something else that they saw as having a terribly um, unhappy influence upon God's people. Micah ministered during the reigns of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah and in, in, the, um, in the south and of um, Pekah and Hosea in the um, north. Uh, he was probably a younger contemporary of, of Isaiah and must have ministered for some 40 to 50 years. That's almost half a century of ministry. Isaiah, having access to the court, being of royal blood, we believe, was a statesman of the first order. That is not generally understood. Um, he was a statesman of great political influence in his day. Um, but Micah does not bother himself with international politics, as does his brother Isaiah. Isaiah was always uh, talking about these terrible alliances being made with Egypt on one side or Syria on the other. He was very concerned, as one would expect, with the effect that this was having upon God's people and upon the testimony uh, that they were uh, holding. Uh, but Micah is not so concerned with international politics. Um, he is much, much more concerned with the life of the people and with the moral and social problems that confronted the average man of his day. Uh, this is the... Um, uh, the burden that, that um, Micah took up. It's, however, quite clear, and this is a very interesting point, that Micah's ministry had a tremendous impact upon young, the young King Hezekiah. Many scholars believe, in fact, that not to Isaiah, but to Micah it was given to initiate the Reformation, which was one of the, which was the greatest up to that time in the history um, of God's people. Uh, that's very interesting. In Jeremiah 26 and verse 18, it, in, it tells us what happened when Micah, the youthful king, Hezekiah had only just um, ascended the throne and told him that because of the sin of the people and of the land, Jerusalem was going to be ploughed up like a field. And the effect was that Hezekiah and the whole nation came down before God. 
And here is another very, very interesting thing. God deferred judgment. It is one of the instances in Scripture in which God says, I will do so and so and so and so, and then changes his mind because they repented. Just as Nineveh, they repented, and the Lord changed his mind and deferred it for some century later, when they finally were destroyed. So here, the Lord changes his mind, as it were, and defers the destruction of Jerusalem for some centuries because of the repentance of King Hezekiah. This period was one of very great crisis internationally. Um, it saw the resurgence of Syria uh, as a great world power. Of course, Assyria had been a great world power before, but she had fallen upon somewhat um, weak days. Now, Assyria, right over to the west, um, were, there was a great resurgence of power in Assyria. Egypt had, had entered her decline from which she was never to recover, and the Syrian coalition that was up here, Damascus, Syria, and Israel, and they tried also to bring in Moab and Edom into this, what they called the Syrian Alliance, or the Syrian Coalition, was destroyed by Assyria, which meant that in the end, with Egypt on the decline, and there was a, a big battle which settled that down here in the, in the very district, very near the district in which uh, Micah lived, um, uh, Syria emerged in Micah's day as really the sole uh, world power, at least the uh, world power with great uh, political influence over these uh, countries. Um, it was also a time when Israel was to be defeated. Israel entered a pact with Syria in, in this Syrian coalition and she lost. She lost because she tried to get Syria to come up against Judah. And the result was that Assyria came up against this coalition, swept away um, Damascus and Syria, and then finally swept down, uh, laying siege to Samaria, capital of uh, Israel, and finally destroying it and depopulating the whole area. They left, of course, the poorer peasants, but they took the whole nobility and aristocracy um, away uh, into captivity, and they were dispersed, never, in fact, to be heard of um, again. So, you see, this was a period of very great crisis. On the one side, the emergence of Assyria as a great power, the um, destruction and dispersal of Israel, which Judah felt very keenly, even if, she, if Israel had been troublesome and difficult. Um, and then uh, also within the two kingdoms, before Israel actually um, collapsed, there had been a period of very great prosperity under the reign of Jeroboam II. I'll, you'll have to see that chart on this a bit later. Uh, whilst in the south there had been a great period of prosperity under the, um, the reign of Uzziah. Um, the result was that with luxury and wealth, 
in both countries and a tremendous uh, inflow of foreign trade, um, import and export, um, the result was that all kinds of foreign practices and so on were introduced um, into the country. Um, when uh, Jeroboam died, um, the, pe a period, the period that followed, I think I'll take this down there, um, the period that followed was one of political restlessness and um, unhappiness. These red lines show assassinations. You can see what happens in the line. Of course, I haven't put the whole lot in. I've only just put the last bit. But in these last few years, after Jeroboam II, the, the uh, royal line of Israel changed all these times um, because of assassinations and so on, and the country was just, well, in some ways rather like France's today, um, just upside down with uh, sort of civil war brewing all the time, restlessness, strife, people trying to seize power, the economy of the country just running down, and spiritually, the whole country was given up to what we call nature worship, which was not uh, a very nice thing at all. In Judah, the prosperous reign of Azar and Jotham gave way to the reign of Ahab, who, as I have already said, was a, a very evil man. He bear, he um, changed the worship of the Lord into a bealized form of worship. He gave, for instance, the Lord Jehovah a wife. He put up idols in the temple. He changed the order of things and so on. He opened high places everywhere on the hills and the mountains of the land. He instituted religious prostitution um, as a means of worship to God and so on. Um, the thing was um, evil to say the very least. But that was followed, as we have already mentioned, by one of the greatest revivals in the history of God's people in the Old, in the Old Testament. That was in the days of Hezekiah. But luxury and wealth had brought with them every kind of vice and injustice, which as soon as Hezekiah died, Manasseh came to the throne, all came back onto the surface again, in spite of that revival. And, um, of course, uh, the end was very unhappy. Until, of course, there was one other great uh, revival in the reign of Josiah, a bit later, before finally Judah went the way of Israel and um, Jerusalem was destroyed. So what can we say? Just to sum up the background of Micah, we can say three things. Politically, it was a period of great crisis. Judah was stable on the whole. Israel was tottering, finally to collapse. And alliances were the order of the day. Now that gives you an understanding of both the ministry of Isaiah and Micah. Alliances were the ministry of the day. The great thing was, with both Israel and Judah, who should you make a pact with? With Syria? With Egypt? With whom should you make a pact? Alliances with the order of the day. These countries were too small, humanly speaking, to stand alone. They'd got to find a big brother somewhere to sort of protect them. And they could either look to Egypt, 
or they could look to Assyria, or they could look to a kind of coalition of the various states around them. Socially, we can sum up this period by saying it was a period of tremendous prosperity, which had brought about great urbanization. Now, that's a word we only use usually today. But in fact, this great period of prosperity brought, back, brought about a trek from the countryside to the city. And with it came all the evils of city life. And that is why Micah speaks about cities always scathingly. For Micah, cities were synonymous with sin. Well, it can be explained by the rapid growth of cities, the exploitation of what amounted to almost serfs, by... Um, wealthy landowners uh, and others who were literally out to get uh, the, the last penny that they could, the last ounce of strength they could out of them. Vice was rampant, the rich became richer, the poor became poorer. And this is one of the interesting things if you read, and I hope you have, the book of Micah. Micah has a lot to say about people stealing land. And perhaps some of you don't quite understand what it meant. Well, it's simply, he speaks of one place of people lying on their beds at night, thinking out how they can um, seize land from poorer peasants. And the order of the day was that the richer landowner thought out schemes whereby he could engineer poor peasants into such a place that he could make a takeover bid. That's all. And they were... Lots of little small holdings were becoming bigger states. And the people who were originally the smallholders had to sell themselves as slaves. They were so poor. Their children were taken away from them and sold as slaves. Their wives were sent into captivity. And the men themselves sold themselves into slaves. You see, now when you begin to understand that, you begin to understand the sort of righteous fury of the prophet Amos. And you also begin to understand the very strong and vigorous uh, protest that, that Micah makes in his uh, prophecies um, about this uh, injustice. So we must remember that. It's uh, very interesting. It was the whole, whole of this time socially was characterised by social injustice, social intrigue and social corruption. You couldn't go to a judge, that was just the point. The rich landowner, when the poor peasant appealed to the judge, which he had a perfect right to do, the rich landowner had already slipped him something. And the judge certainly just gave uh, judgment in favour of the landowner. And the peasant lost every time. It was no good appealing to the prophet for a word from the Lord, because the rich landowner fed the prophet. Some of the landowners kept profits. Uh, they just kept them. And it say, Micah says that if these prophets say, if you keep us, we shall say peace unto thee. And if you don't keep us, we shall say judgment on thee. You see? So um, the result was that, on the whole, you can understand how terrible the whole thing. They couldn't even make recourse to the priest. Because Micah says in another part of his prophecy that the priest gave himself out for hire. So you see, the peasant's lot was absolutely without any hope 
of redress or of justice or of any kind of um, alleviation. If you understand that, you will understand something of the ministry of these prophets. And of course, lastly, spiritually, this um, period was characterized by terrible darkness, spiritually, except for the short reign, well, it wasn't a short reign, but the one reign of Hezekiah and Judah. And the vogue of the day was a naturalized kind of worship of the Lord. And you will realize that when wealth and luxury are the order of the day, people become indulgent. And the nature form of worship was, by its very character, an indulgent uh, religion. You could almost do uh, anything you wished. So much for the background. Can we say anything about the key to this book of Micah? The key to the book of Micah is contained in chapter 7 and in uh, verse 18 to 20 that we read earlier. Who is a God like thee, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance, who does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion upon us. He will tread our iniquity to iniquities underfoot. Thou wilt cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as thou sworn to our fathers from the days of old. It cannot surely be coincidence that Micah's name, which means who is like the Lord, tallies so remarkably with the last cry of worship in this book. And it's a cry of worship. Who is, who is a God like unto thee? The pardoning grace of God is the key to this book of, um, of Micah. And once we understand that, once we see this book in the light, in the light of that, of pardoning grace, it takes on a truly sublime nature. Um, the very abruptness, and I, I want to underline this, the very abruptness of Micah's style lends itself uh, to such a presentation of God's grace. I don't think we shall get very much farther this evening uh, than uh, the key. To Micah. But you see, it is simply wonderful the way the Holy Spirit has taken a man like Micah to present to us what he has to say about God as a God of grace. Because many of us, we've got to have a connection. We must sort of connect what we've said just uh, a few minutes ago with what we are now saying. But Micah didn't seem to worry very much about that. And the very, the very structure of the book, the way it was compiled, has also lent itself to this. And therefore, in, in this little book, <clears throat> you get one of the most remarkable <coughs> presentations of the grace of God. Of God as a God of pardoning grace. For instance, you see, sin 
and failure, far from being overlooked, are in fact accounted for, recorded carefully, and defined. Now, many people's idea of grace is that it's sentimental. God says, oh, dear, 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 they've sinned. Well, well, I, I just won't look. I just won't look. And this is why many of us have not yet, even now as Christians, got a really firm grasp of what it means to be saved by grace. Because we've got this idea that God is sort of, is sentimental about us. And he sort of says, well, I won't look too much at their sin. I'll save them quickly. Save them quickly. Grace means that I don't take too big a look at them. I don't inquire too much. I don't explore too much. I don't define what they've done. I just get over it as quickly as possible and say, look, I'll save you. I love you so much, I'm going to save you. Now, because we've got that idea about grace, many of us step into Christ on a faulty foundation. And sooner or later, the devil trips us up. Because sooner or later, we begin ourselves to discover what's inside. And then we begin to think that God, when God sees now what we're beginning to see inside, he wouldn't have saved us. If he'd really known what we were going to turn out like, he wouldn't have saved us. But you see, this little book of Micah presents to us the most wonderful thing. It takes three whole chapters proclaiming our sin, accounting for our sin, recording our sin carefully, right down to detail, and defining it. Nothing is overlooked. God puts his finger upon sin, iniquity, transgression, whatever you like to call it, in us, and says, I'm not overlooking this. I'm not bypassing this. I'm accounting for it. I have noted it. I have recorded it. And you know one of the most solemn and the most terrible things about sin is that it's recorded. It's no good. You can cry and you can cry and you can cry, but sin is recorded. Not that there's some angel who's scratching it out with a kind of quill pen. Some people have got the idea in heaven. Putting down sin by sin. No, no, no. As some of us are beginning to discover, it's recorded in some remarkable way in the very atmosphere itself. What we've said, what we've thought, what we've done. Some of you saw that film, Time and Eternity. You know what I'm talking about. There is something in the very atmosphere that's like like a camera that is in fact recording. There'll be no need for, for God to have to um, actually look up books. We shall see it. We'll actually see it. I mean, many people who stand before God in the great day of judgment and will say they didn't do this. And then they'll just see it before their eyes, what they did. They'll say to him, I never said that. And out, as it were, the very atmosphere itself, they'll hear themselves. They'll hear what they said. What you and I do is recorded. And it's only today and now 
that although I don't hold any brief for them, it, some of the societies for psychical research are beginning to discover that there is very much more in the atmosphere than we realize. And what some of them are discovering is not necessarily evil. They're touching things that are laws and are principles. That's all. Your sin and my sin, we shall never, ever be able to forget. We might try to forget, but it's there. That's what the scripture means when it says, be sure your sin will find you out. It's written. It's what the Lord meant when he said, by the words of your mouth, you shall be condemned. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So you see, God, in fact, takes account of all that we've said, of all that we've done. Our sins, our transgressions, our iniquities are not, are not overlooked. They're not bypassed. They're not glossed over. They're accounted for. They're recorded. And in this book, you also get something else. You get the failure of both king, prophet, and priest, and people, all carefully recorded. It's all there. You see, some people's idea about grace is that God just sort of pretends that you haven't failed. But that's not grace at all. You see, you've got before you here the absolute and abject and miserable failure of the rulers, of the prophets, and of the priests, and then of the people. I, Michael goes into it all very carefully. And he, and he recorded it all in the most solemn and intense language. It's all there. And when all seems most hopeless and most terrible, when you've got to the third chapter of Michael, you really feel gloomy and in despair. You think, oh dear, what a ministry this is. This is all just what we are and everything else. Suddenly, Micah declares in the most abrupt and most remarkable way that God is going to fulfill his purpose. And this has given a lot of scholars a lot of trouble. In chapter 4, suddenly, without any connection with anything previous, Micah says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established. And there are 13 shells in the next paragraph. And not one of those shells is connected with anything that you and I have done. It's not connected with our faithfulness. It's not connected with our success. It's not connected with our achievement. It's not connected even with our character. Before you've got a, just an, an abject list of miserable failure and sinfulness. And then all of a sudden, only Michael could have been used to do it. God says, I will. It shall be done. This shall happen. That shall happen. The other shall happen. And you know, when you and I begin to see that, it, what, what can we say? Where, where, shall we, where shall we begin? And it's only then that Micah unveils for us 
God's solution. And that is Christ. Bethlehem Ephrata. Who's so small, so insignificant, so obscure, out of you shall come the one who is God's basis for the great shouts of God's word. God said, I can do this, not because my people are anything, but because my son is everything. That's why. Now that is grace. On the one side, prophet, priest, and king have failed, but on the other side, you have him who is our prophet and priest and king. On the one side, the true character of service has been prostituted. It's no longer service. It is a means for personal gain and aggrandizement. That's all. A means by which people can further themselves and feather their own nests. But on the other side, you've got one who comes forth, who is utterly prepared to serve. God's people. He shall stand and feed them in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. That service. He has no need to feed us. <laughs> no need to feed us. But he's going to. That service. He has no need to wash our feet. But he's going to wash our he has no need to stoop down to us, but he's going to stoop down to us. He has no need to, to, to come out of Bethlehem, but he's going to come out of Bethlehem. And that's really what the prophet Micah means by the pardoning grace of God. Upon Christ, as God's basis, God will fulfill his whole purpose and his whole word, not upon what you are or what you are not, but upon what Christ is. And so even the prophet Micah, as early as that, had come to see something of God's, the wonderful nature of God's word. God did not have to give us Christ. He did not have to save us. In fact, we deserved damnation, deserved to be cast off and forsaken. But instead, instead, God in grace moves to save us. It's not sentiment, because he takes into account everything. And his grace is founded upon <coughs> his righteousness and upon his holiness. And that's the wonderful thing about God's grace. You see, I can never feel that somehow that God's going to... Well, God's going to change his mind. Because God has been able to come out to me in grace in the most righteous way that is conceivable. That's all. His basis is Christ. <clears throat> you see, that's the wonder of it all. That's the wonder of it all. That God can, that God's grace is founded in his righteousness and holiness. And not just in, as we think, forgiveness. I remember once someone here on a Sunday morning just mentioned, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to 
forgive us our sins. Now remember that father said, it doesn't say he is faithful and merciful. He is faithful and just. Isn't that wonderful? You see, we've all got a deep, inbred sense that if someone shows us grace as a kind of sneaking backdoor kind of way of getting us in, he might sometime or later get us out by the back door. But you know, God hasn't brought us into a back door. It's not been a kind of, well, look, I'll overlook things. I'll gloss over it. I'll just forget. Oh, no. It's absolute righteousness that lies behind God's grace. God has found a foundation upon which he can save the vilest of us and can keep the vilest of us in spite of what we are. And that foundation is not what you and I are, but what Christ is. On the one side, from Bethlehem, but from the other side, his goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. God and man. Who but an inspired prophet could have seen such an answer to Israel's condition? You see, by the time of poor Micah, things were beginning to really look bad. After thousands of years of human failure and sinfulness, surely some of the prophets begin with, will we ever get there? Do you know that every single dispensation has ended in failure? The first, Adam, collapsed. The second, Noah, he was drunk before the covenant was hardly made. The third, shall we go on? God had no sooner instituted the new covenant with his people at Sinai than there was the gold calf, the golden calf. And it was broken. Every single dispensation that God has made with man, every phase of God's, that God has initiated in his dealings has ended in failure. And you might well say, the prophet was thinking, well, what's, what, what's the good? What really is the good? We seem to have within us inherent failure. You don't have to go very much farther. You back... You've only got to go back <coughs> some thousand, two thousand years. Look at this dispensation. Began so gloriously at Pentecost and within a few hundred years it had failed. This dispensation is a failure. Where is the church? Split into a million segments. All kinds of rivalry. We must say it's a failure. And it's so, isn't it, not only on the bigger side, it's so on the personal side. You take every one of God's great men. They've all failed. We have only two who didn't fail, Enoch, who walked with God and was not, but God took him, and Elijah, who was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind. There are only two. Even Moses failed. David failed. Solomon failed. Everyone's failed. Dear Hezekiah, we've been talking about this evening. Not got very far. The Holy Spirit had used him, and he failed. 
The last thing recorded of him was he made an alliance with Babylon. God said, I will judge thee. You see, it's failure. It's, it's depressing. It's terribly depressing. <coughs> if, we, if we hadn't got a book like the book of Micah. Because Micah says, prophet has failed, priest has failed, king has failed. People have failed, but God will still complete his purpose. In spite of all his failure and sinfulness, God is going to do it. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall in fact be, on, be higher than ever. It's going to be established. And all nations are going to flow. Why? How? How can God do it? How can a righteous, holy God do it? Because he's found the foundation. He's found Christ as his basis. And Christ is the only one who began, went on, and finished without failure, not in any one point. And it is the only dispensation in, 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 in the Bible which did not fail. Christ won. God has found his basis. And so if you and I come by Christ to God, we find God as the God of pardoning grace. If you and I take Christ as our foundation, God accepts us. And we find him as one who forgives us. Ah, oh, that's wonderful. But wait, wait. He buries our sins in the depths of the sea. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that means? All that's been so carefully accounted for, that's been recorded, is expunged. Never, ever to be remembered again. Only the Christian can claim that. There is no man or woman who can have a single sin that they've thought or committed expunged. Ex except through the blood of Christ. If you and I take Christ, God expunges every sinful act and every sinful thought that we have ever committed. It's expunged. I said there was a kind of camera in, in the atmosphere. God takes the, the film, whatever it is, and it's destroyed. I said, there's a kind of a tape recorder. And then God takes the tape and destroys it. He'll never remember it. It's thrown into the depths of the sea. As far as the east is from the west, they never meet. Never meet. As far as the east is from the west, God is removed. Sinful. Well, isn't that wonderful? There's, there's, no, there's nothing else in the whole world that offers such a... Uh, such a that offers anything like that to men and women that's grace God didn't have to God wasn't obliged to but God did it because he found Christ Christ is God's basis so you see isn't it wonderful to come to someone who is faithful and just to forgive us all our 
and to cleanse us from all our When God cleanses something, he forgets it. I was saying to a few last night, you know what a lot of us feel? We think that somehow or other, God has written down something, you see, and he's put it all away. And he says, I'll forgive you, I'll forgive you. But it's still there in the book. Still there in the book, you see. And he says, oh, I've forgiven you, I've forgiven you. But you know, he could at any time say, you know, on May the 5th of 1956, you did so and so and so and so and so. Uh, and I see here on, uh, down here on such and such a date, so you did so and so and, uh, and so and so and so and so, you see. That's what we've got an idea about God. He's got it all in the book. He said, I've forgiven you, but I've got it there. Just in case you try to be troublesome. Bring it all up. But God hasn't done that. God in grace, if we've taken Christ, has torn up the book. Doesn't matter how troublesome we appear. God says, I don't know anything about it. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God? God says, do nothing about it. I've got no record of that. No. Not because God is sentimental, but because Christ has borne it all. That's why. Well, we must leave it there. And next week, perhaps we'll look at the outline. But you see, we've got no other, we've got no other hope that God's purpose is going to be realised other than God's grace. That's the only, only hope. Isn't it a wonderful thing that Zechariah a bit later has a vision of the house? Been such a battle over that house and Zechariah was one who knew all about the battle over it. And finally they've got up to the roof. But there were some rather big top stones that still needed to go in and all of them were having such a lot of difficulty about getting those top stones into it. But he says, you know... The Lord by the Spirit said to him, not by might nor by power, by my Spirit, said the Lord, the top stone shall be put in with shouts of what? Glory, glory to it. No, no. No, not so at all. Well, what will the shouts be? Grace. Grace. That's how God completes everything he has begun. Man fails, but God in grace completes. Now, that's the most wonderful thing of all. And so, of course, when you come to the end of the book of Micah, you have a peal of praise. Who is a God like unto thee? Who pardoneth transgression and overlooks sin in the remnant of those who have escaped? Well, may the Lord just help us. So we bow together.